Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number eight of the Lawyers for Employers podcast brought to you by CC Partners. My name is Andrew Cogswell, and I am one of the lawyers for employers at CC Partners. CC Partners is a law firm focused exclusively on advising and representing employers in all areas of labor and employment law. And today I am joined by one of my colleagues, Kelsey Orth. Good afternoon. As I'm sure everyone is aware, many of the sweeping legislative changes to the Employment Standards Act and the Labor Relations Act ushered in with the passing of the Fair Workplaces Better Jobs Act, commonly referred to by its legislative number Bill 148, have already taken effect starting in January of this year. However, there are still changes to come, including in 2019, minimum wage gets another bump and scheduling restrictions come into play. But there's one significant amendment that is mere weeks away from taking effect. With the April 1st deadline approaching, we thought it would be a good time to discuss the equal pay for equal work provisions being added to the Employment Standards Act. I have Kelsey Orth with me today to help talk about those changes that are being swept in. But before we get started, Kelsey, why don't you speak to us a little bit about your areas of practice? Sure. Thanks, Andrew. My practice is focused, uh, as we all are, on representing employers. I'd say the split between my practice is about 70% unionized employers and 30% non-union. Regardless of whether an employer is unionized or not, they're going to be affected by these changes to the ESA. And in particular, I know there are a lot of employers out there questioning how the equal pay for equal work amendments will work in their workplace. So as we know, on April 1st, we'll have those provisions added to the Employment Standards Act respecting equal pay for equal work. But what does that mean? So First off, although that April 1st deadline is in place, I should mention that any employer with a collective agreement that is in force prior to April 1st will not be affected until either that agreement expires or January 1st, 2020, whichever one of those dates comes first. That being said, the rest of Ontario's employers, as of April 1st, regardless of the size or composition of their workforce, will be subject to these new provisions in the Employment Standards Act. So, as you likely know, Section 42 of the Employment Standards Act, or ESA, currently addresses equal pay for equal work with respect to discrimination on the basis of sex. As of April 1st, new provisions 42.1 and 42.2 will be added, which will now prohibit employers from discriminating in pay rates on the basis of employment status. So section 42.1, first of all, essentially decrees that part-time, full-time, casual employees, whatever status you assign to your employees, they all have to be paid the same when they're doing the same job. Section 42.2 provides that same protection with respect to pay rates to temporary or assignment employees as well. So while there are some additional amendments to the ESA that have already taken effect with respect to temporary help agencies, I don't want to get into those today, but this change with respect to equal pay for equal work will apply to temporary help agencies as well. 
Okay, so we know that the addition of section 42.1 will recognize that full-time employees, part-time employees, casual employees, as well as potentially temporary employees will all be treated the same with respect to rates of pay. But what does it mean to have the same job? That's a good question, Andrew. For that, we have to look at another addition to the ESA, which is at section 41.2, legislation has been changed where before the definition of same work was just substantially the same, now additional wording has been added so that it's substantially the same but not necessarily identical. So what that does is it broadens the applicability of this substantially the same criterion to encompass more jobs that are not identical but otherwise might be characterized as similar. So are there any exceptions to these new rules? Yes, there are. The legislation specifically allows employers to maintain pay differences or to have pay differences between employees where those differences are based on one or all of four factors. A, a seniority system. B, a merit system. C, a system that measures earnings by quantity or quality of production. Or D, any other factor other than sex or employment status. And this would include, in the case of assignment employees, their status as assignment employees. Okay, so now you've covered for us the specific provisions that are being added, the specific exceptions that are noted within the legislation. How do you see this playing out from a practical perspective for employers and in terms of how this might be enforced? Are employers simply going to be stuck paying the same rates to everybody? Well, I think it will certainly constitute a big change for employers, largely in terms of how they look at their workforce. And obviously, some employers will have to change their pay rates. But it is worth looking at those factors that are identified that I just mentioned. So going through them in order, with respect to a seniority system, that's fairly straightforward. We're generally talking about a wage grid, which is common in in a unionized setting. And those should be explicit. Now, any differences in wages that an employer is looking to rely on based on seniority shouldn't be discretionary or arbitrary and and definitely shouldn't appear to be. So you want to be explicit about where and how the seniority works. The second factor is the merit system. Now, we're not sure how the Ministry of Labor intends to enforce this, but again, I would say that any employer looking to rely on a merit system defense as a justification for different pay rates should be making explicit and clear both how the merit system is implemented, how it's measured, and how it is used to determine those differential pay rates. I would also say, and this is just my opinion here, but I think it's a likely extrapolation or a reasonable one to make given the purpose of the Fair Workplaces Better Jobs Act, that employers using merit to differentiate on the basis of pay will also want to be able to show that an employee's employment status does not affect that particular employee's ability to achieve whatever merit-based standards are necessary. The third factor is quantity or quality of production. This one I see is fairly straightforward also. If you have true piecework arrangements, then you should be able to meet that criterion. Again though, and similar to the merit system, I think that if you're an employer with a piecework compensation scheme, you may want to have a look at whether someone's employment status affects their ability to earn more on that piecework basis. Obviously, it's an uncommon scenario. We don't normally apply those labels of full-time, part-time, etc. 
to peace workers, but it's something to watch out for. So the fourth factor, the any other factor, uh, I think this is the most interesting one. Why do you say that? Are there other factors currently prescribed by the legislation? There's nothing in the in the regulations, at least as of yet, and I don't anticipate that they will necessarily prescribe anything in the near future. Although I should mention that the regulations do specifically state that these provisions, 42.1, does not apply to firefighters, students under 18, and for whatever reason, people employed in the recorded visual and audiovisual entertainment production industry. That aside, there are no regulations or exemptions in the regulations with respect to 42.1. Thanks for that clarification. So what considerations do you think might go into determining what might be any other factor? Well, here I think it's going to hinge on the wording of another section that's been added to the ESA based on the recent Bill 148 amendments, and that's 42.1, where the prohibition against differential pay is set out. So I'm going to read that for you now, just to be clear about what we're talking about. And it says, no employer shall pay an employee at a rate of pay less than the rate paid to another employee of the employer because of a difference in employment status when, A, they perform substantially the same kind of work in the same establishment, B, their performance requires substantially the same skill, effort, and responsibility, and C, their work is performed under similar working conditions. So, We know that substantially the same has an expanded definition, but what I want to focus on here is subsection B, and that's where I think employers will be able to hang their hats, so to speak. Can you give us an example of how employers may come to rely on on that wording of having the same skill, effort, and responsibility? Sure, and to put an even finer point on it, I think that the word responsibility is where most often it will be the easiest to demonstrate a, a difference. So, for instance, an employer may not, and probably would not, assign to a casual or temporary employee the same kind of responsibility as it would to a permanent employee where those jobs have significant either risks uh, with respect to health and safety or significance with respect to the overall business. So uh, one particular example might be in in the daycare setting. I'm not sure how familiar our listeners are with the daycare setting, but in daycare, we have various regulations and rules with respect to the number of people required to be present to take care of children of different ages. And outside of that, though, there are a number of things that are required of permanent employees that those people filling the ratios in the rooms wouldn't be required to do. For instance, programming activities and learning time for the children, making observations with respect to children's progress. All of those things are, are responsibilities that permanent employees will absolutely have responsibility for, but that no daycare operator is going to expect a temporary employee coming in or a casual supply employee coming in to have to do. Another example might be safety-sensitive positions in a manufacturing setting. You wouldn't expect an employee who's filling in for a day on a production line to be also responsible for safety checks or machine changes, that kind of thing. And I think where we can differentiate between the job of that permanent employee and someone filling in 
simply to keep things running, that might be an area where you could say the responsibility is different. I think that makes sense. When you think of it from a practical perspective, perhaps in the manufacturing setting example that you gave, that while every employee needs to be aware of particular safety risks and hazards that exist in the workplace, an employee that is permanent or has been with the employer for an extended period of time is going to have more familiarity with those risks and hazards and may have additional responsibilities than, say, a temporary employee that's just filling in. So thanks for that, Kelsey. What I'd like to move on to now is providing perhaps some practical tips to employers to how they might defend against claims that they have allegedly violated the equal pay for equal work provisions. Sure. I think the key is going to be clearly differentiating with documentation what the different jobs mean and what's expected. Now, we know that the Ministry of Labor, whether it be at the Employment Standards Branch or at the Ontario Labor Relations Board, is always going to focus on substance over form. But if you do have those true differences in areas that we've identified, either the seniority system, merit system, piecework, or the other, any other factor, then you need to be able to demonstrate that clearly. And you have to be able to do so without requiring an inspector to spend a week in your workplace. And you certainly don't want that. I think most employers can, uh, can appreciate that. Is there anything else you think that our listeners should know in advance of April 1st? That's a tough one because we've yet to see much, if anything, in the way of challenges or more importantly, decisions on any of those challenges from employers with respect to the applicability of any of these amendments. They're so new that that's not a surprise. However, I do expect this particular change will provide fertile ground for dispute. I think there's a significant gray area here. And what we want to do is try to get those employers through that gray area so that they can legitimately and logically say, there is reason, I can justify this, I'm not running afoul of these these new provisions. Thank you, Kelsey. I'm sure our listeners will find this information very helpful and informative. This has been Andrew Cogswell and Kelsey Orth taking a closer look at the Equal Pay for Equal Work provisions of Bill 148 coming into effect on April 1st, 2018. Now, for our listeners, if you want more general information on Bill 148, I encourage you to take a look at our blog that was released on November 30th, 2017 by Susan Crawford, which has a very detailed summary of the changes brought in by Bill 148 and the effect on employers, as well as podcast number episode number two, which took a look at Bill 148 more generally. For our listeners, if you have specific questions regarding how these provisions or Bill 148 generally applies to your business, you should seek independent legal advice. CC Partners is well equipped to provide that advice, and you can connect with us online via our website at www.ccpartners.ca. On the website, you can also find our weekly blogs and the rest of our podcast library. You can also connect with us on Twitter at CC Partners Law where we invite you to pose questions or topics you'd like to hear us discuss on a future podcast. Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to connecting with our listeners again on episode number nine. Until then, take care and thank you for listening to the Lawyers for Employers podcast.